2: Welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Researchers have made embryos that are part human and part monkey. It's a corner of science with plenty of potential to shed light on developmental problems or even grow organs for transplant. But it's also a discipline with a serious ethical dimension. And the Arab world has long turned to Egypt for its popular entertainment, particularly television. But what's on the tube under the current leadership is looking more and more like propaganda. So Egyptians and others are changing the channel. First up, though. In Hong Kong, nine high-profile democracy activists were sentenced on Friday for their roles in the protests that roiled the territory two years ago. The list is a who's who of Hong Kong's most prominent, outspoken, and storied campaigners, who entered the courthouse as defiant as ever.
1: We are not the first batch of prisoner of conscience, and we will not be the last. I'm
2: ready to face. The penalty of the sentencing! As the defendants exited and were driven away, chants broke out in a sparse crowd, a bold expression of what remains of Hong Kong's protest spirit. Hong Kong is supposed to have a unique arrangement with the rest of China, one country, two systems. Its politics and policing were notionally independent from the mainland. But with last week's sentencing, the unilateral imposition of a draconian new national security law and changes to Hong Kong's electoral system, it increasingly seems there's just one system, one that, as on the mainland, leaves little space for dissent.
0: The nine people who were charged on Friday received prison sentences ranging from eight to 18 months. Four of them received suspended sentences because of their age and their contributions to Hong Kong society.
2: Su Lin Wong is a China correspondent for The Economist and is based in Hong Kong.
0: The sentences are the most severe punishments to date for pro-democracy activists and politicians in connection to the big protests we saw in Hong Kong in 2019. What's important to note here is that this particular sentencing isn't connected to the national security law, which was introduced after the protests occurred.
2: And let's run through what it is exactly the activists are, are accused of.
0: Their sentencing is part of a series of trials that are all related to the large-scale pro-democracy protests from two years ago. And the nine activists were charged with organising and participating in an unauthorised assembly that was uh, mostly related to a particular protest that happened on August 18, 2019. They are accused of defying police instructions encouraging crowds to march and causing traffic disruptions. The defence did not contest the facts but challenged the constitutionality of the police's ability to ban assemblies.
2: And these are some of the most high-profile activists in Hong Kong, right?
0: Yes. The two most famous of the group are Jimmy Lai and Martin Lee. So Jimmy Lai is a business tycoon and he is the owner and publisher of the Apple Daily, which is an outspoken pro-democracy tabloid, frequently critical of the Communist Party in Hong Kong. I mean, he was jailed for a total of 14 months. He's quite unique because most tycoons in Hong Kong, particularly those who have business interests in mainland China, are very timid and cautious about speaking out against the Communist Party. On Tuesday, the Apple Daily published a handwritten letter He sent to the staff of the Apple Daily and urged them to take care of themselves and reminded the journalists that it was a journalist's responsibility to uphold justice. And the other most famous person in the group to be sentenced was Martin Lee. He's often considered the father of democracy in Hong Kong. He's a veteran of Hong Kong's struggle for more political rights, and he is the founding chairman of the Democratic Party he was handed a suspended sentence. And there were other very, very prominent activists, including Margaret Ng.
2: And to your mind, what does the sentencing of these high-profile figures mean for Hong Kong's pro-democracy movement more generally?
0: I think what is very important to note about this particular case is that these activists are considered moderates. A lot of them believed... In changing the system from within. So they ran for election, they were elected to the legislative council, or they were lawyers, many of them considered the top legal minds of their generation in Hong Kong. Um, So this sends a very, very clear message that even moderate dissent in Hong Kong is now not allowed.
2: And you mentioned Hong Kong's new national security law, that too is sort of doubling down on the notion of dissent, isn't it?
0: Yes. As a result of this crackdown, as well as the national security law, we've seen the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong destroyed. Many of the most prominent pro-democracy activists are now either in jail or in exile. And we're seeing the national security law impact all kinds of aspects of Hong Kong society. For example, schools now have to implement a national security Law curriculum and children as young as six now have to study what kinds of crimes are covered under the new law. I just wrote a story last week about the problems of Hong Kong's vaccine rollout and how many public health experts in the city are very worried about how Sinovac, the Chinese vaccine, is being rolled out in Hong Kong, but are now too afraid to speak publicly about their concerns because. They fear for their careers and they're also worried about being charged under this new security law, which includes offences of undermining the local Hong Kong government as well as the central government.
2: And it's not just executive powers that are changing here. I mean, we spoke on the, on the show last month about the change in the electoral system as well.
0: I think the two biggest changes to Hong Kong since the protests ended have been the implementation of national security law, as well as a sweeping overhaul of the electoral system here. So it used to be that more than 50% of seats in Hong Kong's parliament were directly elected, but now only 22% will be directly elected And all prospective members of parliament will first have to be vetted by a probation committee to ensure they are loyal to the mainland and to the Communist Party. And the aim of this is to ensure only so-called patriotic figures can run for positions of power.
2: I mean, we we keep coming back to this story and the prospects for democracy and, and democratic activism in Hong Kong just seems to be going down and down again. Is there anything that the international community can do to stop this trend?
0: Well, we have seen the American government, the UK government, the Canadian government come out and condemn the sentencing. And last month, America sanctioned 24 Chinese and Hong Kong officials over Beijing's ongoing crackdown on the city. But... The reality is that the West has so much business in China and the allure of the Chinese market is irresistible to so many businesses in the West and the rest of the world. And it seems that China is going to get away with what it's doing in Hong Kong insofar as we're seeing a financial boom in the city right now. We're seeing record levels of money pouring in. So It's likely that the democracy movement in Hong Kong will continue, but it's very possible it might have to be driven by Hong Kong activists who are now in exile in places like the UK and Australia. I don't think the underlying resentment that many Hong Kongers have towards the Communist Party has disappeared. If anything, it has grown because of the brutal crackdown we've seen over the past one and a half years. It's just that now many are incredibly scared of being too outspoken because they've seen how the party and the authorities retaliate. And the sentencing is one example of this in the eyes of many in Hong Kong.
2: Su Lin, thanks very much for your time.
0: Thanks very much, Jason.
3: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
2: In Greek mythology, a chimera was a fire-breathing blend of creatures. A thing of immortal make, not human, lion-fronted and snake behind, a goat in the middle. But biologists have borrowed the word to describe organisms with cells from two genetically distinct animals. For decades, scientists have been experimenting with them. Mouse rats, sheep, goats, and chicken quails. Now, a laboratory first has raised some big ethical questions.
1: Scientists at Kunming University of Science and Technology over in China managed to create an embryo that are part monkey and part human.
2: Claire Oliver-Williams writes about science for The Economist.
1: The remarkable thing about all this is that human cells seem happy to cooperate, at least some of the time, with the monkey cells.
2: Well, let's start with the how. How did the researchers manage to create this chimera?
1: The work builds on earlier endeavors by many of the same researchers and other teams as well. So back in 2017, the biologists managed to create uh, chimeric human pig embryos, but these weren't totally successful. About one cell in every 100,000 in the embryos were human, and it was unclear whether those human cells really contributed to the embryo's growth. This time, things have been quite different. The cells were found to actually interact with each other, which is amazing.
2: So how did they determine that the cells were interacting with each other?
1: So they began with 132 embryos of the crab-eating macaque, And six days after these cells were fertilised, they were injected with human extended pluripotent stem cells. Now, stem cells can develop into any other type of cell in the body. So these embryos survived in the lab for enough time for a process called gastrulation to take place. Now, gastrulation is a key developmental stage. In this stage, embryonic cells become primed to form different organs and tissues The human cells took a bit longer to reach this point than the monkey ones, but they managed to do it nevertheless. And this just provides more evidence that the human cells were not merely passive passengers, but they were actually mucking in and helping in the process of embryonic development.
2: And now to the why. Why is this being done?
1: There are two main reasons that the researchers put forward. Firstly, they say it can shed light on the very complicated process of embryological development, which might eventually lead to treatments for some congenital diseases. Chimeras may also offer a way around some of the ethical difficulties involved in experimenting on human embryos. The other hope is that chimeric animals might one day provide a source of organs to be transplanted into sick humans. So in 2017, some Japanese researchers demonstrated that this was possible by transplanting parts of a pancreas that they had grown inside of a mouse-rat chimera into a diabetic mouse, thus curing it of its diabetes. Whether that can work for people, of course, is currently unclear. But for organs, the scientists would ideally use human pig chimeras rather than the human monkey ones they created. And this is because pigs' organs are roughly the size of the human equivalents And fairly or unfairly, they seem to provoke fewer moral qualms.
2: But not none. I mean, about those moral qualms, aren't there ethical dilemmas with experimenting on chimeras involving human cells of any kind with any other animal?
1: Oh, yes, yeah. I mean, experiments involving human cells can break deep-seated taboos about human dignity, human exceptionalism, and, of course, among the religious. It stirs up worries about interfering with God's creation, But it's worth noting that the human monkey embryos were not intended to grow to maturity and they could not because they were grown outside of a body. But it is right to wonder what might have happened if they had and what should be done if or indeed when someone decides to try that. Some of the questions surrounding this include what is the moral and legal status of an organism with one human genome and one non-human genome and what effect, if any, might the human cells have on that animal's brain. So for this reason, America, for instance, forbids federal funding of such work, but many other countries do allow it.
2: As you say, it's a a matter of when, not if. So how to get around these ethical quandaries?
1: These ethical debates and ethical dilemmas, they're not new. They've been going on for years, but mostly they have been in scientific journals and academic conferences, places where kind of the public rarely venture into so if this is the first time people have come across this concept of chimeras, it's going to be pretty shocking to them. It's going to take them by surprise and it could result in a backlash. So the best way to ensure that such research can proceed is to ensure that there's an open dialogue with the public and they're fully informed.
2: And with those concerns put to bed, then you think this research is worth the risks and the angst that's going to come with it?
1: So such research should always be done really cautiously and be properly monitored as this research was done. There was a lot of ethical oversight for it. And it's always worth kind of looking back in history when you're thinking about these kind of big scientific changes. So many biological technologies that were first looked at in kind of horror and seen as meddling in the natural order of things have ended up proving to be a lot less frightening in practice and have even become mainstream just think of IVF, for example. People found that really unnerving and unnatural to begin with. But these days, it's totally routine, at least in the Western world. And we can't ignore the really long waiting list for transplants that are an issue internationally. And this is something the researchers are hoping to help with. So growing human organs in the bodies of animals, which could then be used for transplants, could help. So this kind of approach... If it was successful in the long term, that could save many lives. But to get to that point, there is a lot of work that needs to be done. And the scientists would have to convince other scientists and the public that chimeras are really needed for this kind of research.
2: Claire, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. From geopolitics to genetics, The Economist's correspondence help you make sense of the headlines, And bring you stories that aren't making headlines but should be. Get a great introductory deal on a subscription at slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. In the Egyptian television drama The Choice, Hesham Ashmewi, Egypt's most wanted man, prepares to be executed. At the end of the scene, the show cuts to leaked footage of the real Hashem Ashmewi appearing in front of a judge before his execution. (laughs) The show, which focuses on terrorism, is one of Egypt's most watched. It's something of a departure from years past, when the country's most popular shows tended to center not on depictions of soldiers, but on something a bit more risque, and potentially troubling for Egypt's leaders.
3: Egypt has always led the Middle East in terms of filmmaking.
2: Eric Connect writes about Egypt for The Economist and is based in Cairo.
3: In the 60s, you had the president, Gamal Abdel Nasser, buying up much of the industry in order to promote his pan-Arab agenda. It's always been recognized as this huge tool of cultural influence for Egypt. But that's changing. Yeah, the, the difference now is that since 2014, when President Abdel Fattah Sisi came to power, he's sort of taken this in a new direction in the sense that he's now used the tools of the industry to really start directly intervening and creating films that really promote the state's agenda in a way that hasn't been seen since probably the 1960s. At one point early on in 2015, there was a pretty telling moment when he warned the TV stars at a conference that if they didn't go along with the state's agenda, that they were going to be held accountable. It's a pretty stark thing to say for the president of a country talking to actors and actresses. And this is something that we didn't see in the previous decades when the industry was given back to the private sector during the 70s, 80s and 90s. How so?
2: What exactly is he doing?
3: Since 2016 or so, the main channels have been bought up by this company controlled by Egypt's intelligence. And one company in particular called Synergy has been at the forefront of making the majority of content during Ramadan when Egyptians watch the most TV.
2: But that said, censorship is not an entirely
3: new idea in Egypt, right? That's true. So Egypt has always had really strict censorship and things like talking badly about religion or having too much sex on TV, all of these things have always been taboo. But in recent years, they've really stepped this up. New rules came out over the last few years that say things like you can't show extreme poverty. Sometimes you can't even show extreme wealth because they don't want to promote these class divisions. Sexual innuendos that used to be pretty common are completely banned. The most striking thing probably is that before C.C.'s time, there was a lot of very open criticism against the police and against the bureaucracy and against the state. It was always made light of and a lot of movies that are considered classics, but they would never be allowed to be produced today. So it's quite different what you see on TV now.
2: Is that to say that it's not as entertaining?
3: So if you ask a critic of Egyptian TV and film, they would say, while the production standard has increased, the actual content has really suffered. It all feels very repetitive and bland. So you hear a lot of complaints that what's on TV, especially during Ramadan, especially when most of the content is from a single producer controlled by intelligence, it's pretty obvious that there's just not much there. So a lot of people really complain about this and they look for options outside of Egyptian TV.
2: So all of this is essentially undercutting Egypt's dominance in the region.
3: Yes, it's coming at a pretty bad time for Egypt to be less competitive because there's a lot more content coming out of Turkey. Saudi Arabia is a big one. There's production centers in Dubai and Jordan. So Egypt is really restricting itself, even as its competitors are growing stronger, really almost for the first time giving them a run for their money, unlike in earlier decades.
2: So if fewer people are actually watching this stuff, then it doesn't work as well as a propaganda tool.
3: So the interesting thing is that while content in general has tanked, the one area that the state has really focused on and that producers have gotten really good at is the propaganda. So you'll see now a huge percentage of the stuff that's on TV or film has to do with stories about the army, stories about the police things that really tell the state's perspective. So CC's focus on this entertainment has paid dividends because people do enjoy a lot of this pro-army, pro-police content that's really getting the state's message beamed into people's homes.
2: Eric, thanks very much for your time.
3: Thank you so much.
2: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review, and we'll see you back here tomorrow.